HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, We've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, compost. It's what's for dinner. We spend a lot of time talking about the end product the dish, the recipe, the chef, even the seeds. But I think we should be paying as much attention to the soil and its health. It all starts in the soil, after all, and we should have learned from the Dust Bowl that the more we farm, the more nutrients we're removing from the earth through our food. With the advent of chemical fertilizers, we got larger crops, but from soil that was just as bad and getting worse. It's like we gave the plants amphetamines to see if they would be more productive. While you might get more work done on speed initially, it's not a long-term solution. What we need is better soil, and there are people out there who are working to address this issue. It's logistics, it's carting, it's waste management too. When New York rolled out its own municipal composting program, I found that I put so much less by weight into the trash can. So much of what was going out was in fact compostable. If we were all able to compost a little more and get the farms to use more compost and less chemical fertilizers, we might get fewer carrots, but I bet they'd be better for us and provide us with more nutrients. Last week, I visited EarthCare Farm in Charlestown, Rhode Island. I walked around the farm with Jane Murner Senecal, who took over the farm three years ago from her father. He started the compost operation in 1977, initially to service the landscaping and turf industry, but he soon realized that there was a market for his high-quality organic compost among farms and home gardeners as well. It's amazing to see an operation that's making such important, nutrient-dense compost. Standing in their home garden, I was struck by the diversity and the health of the plants. 
It's great to see what you can do if you start from the best stuff and keep the plants healthy. A carrot grown in their soil was found to be nearly 200 times more nutrient-dense than a conventional carrot. It was a variety that usually grows about 8 inches long. Theirs was more than twice that size. Walking around the operation, walking around the composting operation, which is their main business, although they do grow and sell some rhubarb and garlic, it's clear that they have it down and really do care about what they're doing. The main part of the operation is a football field long pile of compost 12 feet high that gets turned over back and forth to provide air and oxygen to the microbes and other small organisms that are breaking down the material. It takes a lot of work to turn that pile over and over again. It's broken down into one-month blocks. Each block is about 2,000 yards of material, so they get about 25,000 yards a year coming in, which only yields out about 5,000 yards of finished product. The heat generated keeps the pile between 131 and 160 degrees Fahrenheit. This sterilizes any weed seeds that get into the pile, and the high temperature keeps the microbes happy. It's easy to see how rich the material is. It's dark, fine, beautiful. All the compost gets screened before going to the end users to remove the larger particles and to make the final product the best possible compost. They get their inputs from coffee companies, zoos, food scraps, tea producers, leaves and grass from municipalities, fish scraps from processing, and more. While they do charge a fee to take the material, they only charge about half what it would cost to dump it at the landfill, so it's a win-win. They teach gardening classes as well if you're ever in the area. Look them up at earthcarefarm.com. And now for the interview. I'm Jane Merner Senecal, and I'm really honored to get to take over Earthcare Farm. It's been three years now. I took over from my dad, and uh, he was just really a pioneer in understanding soil health. Um, and really stuck to it at a challenging time. The 80s was like not a time to be really organically minded. So <laughs> 70s, he Ketchup maybe was, a yeah, and yeah, all that stuff. totally. Yeah. So he's just stuck with his, um, his, I don't know, his, his just his gut on what was needed for, for our area and the planet. And um, always had this feeling that, that if you build it, it'll come sort of mentality of, uh, he never worried about the, the little things that it would all work out if you're doing the right thing and yeah. he just had such passion my mom is equally as passionate about other things and um, they just got they just always say do what feels right and yeah, it, it comes around so um, he's gotten a little older and physically just parts have worn out and knees and hips are cranky and sure. uh, so he really it came to a point about three years ago when he just couldn't keep up anymore and I do have a brother and sister we all sat down together with my parents, and what are we gonna do? Um, my sister's just, she's awesome, she's the glue of the family, but she's not into farming at all. <laughs> my brother has a really established um, stonemasonry company, and, uh, and he just wasn't really ready to come back and do this. Yeah. And I am and was running a gardening service. We take care of um, estates in the area, all their gardens, and. Um, planters and design and it, it dovetailed really nicely here sure and so I was able to for two years just have our business come start and end the day here and I was able to kind of be here and then go out and check on the jobs during the day and um, and then last year I actually moved into the family house my husband's a carpenter he built an addition for my parents um, and they moved into there so I'm here with my son and, and husband and um, so I feel like now three years, we're a little more settled in. Sure. All the paperwork has been worked out, right. and um, I'm really enjoying it. 
I didn't know it was coming, but I'm just like I'm psyched to be back. Is it ever hard to like live here and run the business here? Do you feel like you're able to disconnect, or are you always at work? Um, it's a it's definitely a little challenging, and um, my husband and I have a pact that four times a year we have to leave. So <laughs> because it's really, I mean. Even the weekends, there's always people here. It's almost like a public park in some ways. Sure. Um, and the house is sort of a communal space at times. So it does feel, it's, we don't have a lot of privacy. Yeah. But we're going to go to Maine for a weekend in October. Very and, cool. Um, we're just doing little things here and there. Yeah. <laughs> here comes Julie with some carrot juice. From oh, these awesome. Amazing carrots. <laughs> I like carrot juice. I do. I love carrot juice. <laughs> Thanks so yeah. much. Thank you. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> Julie's the office manager slash everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So this is carrot juice from the carrots that we picked, yes. earlier, that picked earlier. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, and it's interesting. Once we get a frost, it'll be even sweeter. It'll be like sure. super sweet. So I'm curious what happens to the nutrient density at that point. Oh, are is you going to be able to test it and check the differences? I, I'll have to ask if I yeah. can. I have another sample bag I could send in, right. like from the same bed. Sure. What's going to happen there? Yeah, yeah I, carrot, carrots and sweetness is so interesting. There's um, Modernist Cooking was a giant cookbook that came out a number of years ago written by a guy named Nathan Mirvold. In that book, he has an incredible recipe for carrots that was really mind sort of bending for me, where you pressure cook the carrots with butter, but you add a little bit of, um, uh, I'm gonna get this wrong, it's either baking baking powder or baking soda. I think it's a little bit of baking soda. And there's something about adding that that helps in under pressure at the higher heat to really bring out the sugars. Hmm. And the carrots come out like so sweet it's oh unbelievable gosh. and if you do like an AB and you don't add that in they don't quite the, the sugars don't convert or caramelize in the same way it's Ooh. very interesting I'll have to try that yeah, yeah. Um, it's also super fast I mean pressure yeah. cooking is one of the things that I actually love using me too um, because it is so fast yeah I just got one a year ago and um, it's been like making dinner so much easier yeah. <laughs> yeah and people I mean people are afraid of them but you know <laughs> um, well, this, I mean, this is delicious. I don't, I don't, you know, it, it would be, it would be interesting, I think, to know whether or not we as humans can tell, like if we had a glass of this carrot juice, mm-hmm. and if your carrots are the ones that are, say, 200 times more nutrient dense, or even 100 times more nutrient dense than, uh, you know, a different carrot, I don't, I wonder if we would be able to tell taste-wise. Um, I imagine that you'd be able to tell over time in the way your body feels. Yeah. Um, but I'm I, not sure if we are, I'm not sure if our tongues are actually sensitive enough. I, I bet that there's people that, just like those wine tasters, you sure. know, I'm sure that there are people that have that sensitivity. I'm probably not one of yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell when it's carrots really sweet, you know, but, uh, sure. but I, but there's, you know, in the same bed, I'm not sure if I could tell from each area, right. if, you know, right. what end of the field is sweeter. And, and there's so many things that go into tasting and, and understanding those things too, right? If you are at the end of a long day and you're just trying to get dinner on the table, are you going to notice if a carrot is better or not? You might not. But if you're in a moment where you're like going to taste it and really sort of yeah. internalize it, I think you'd absolutely can. Totally. People can tell the difference. Um, so your operation here, I was looking at your site, and you have you know you have very clear kind of rules, which I love that it's out there in the open about what people can bring to you for compost. Now, and it's it's not people aren't just driving up with their compost from their home kitchen, right? You guys are getting truckloads yeah. of yeah. stuff from, as you pointed, as you said, you're getting things from zoos, mm-hmm. um, coffee grounds, um, fish processing, yep, right? Yeah, fish processing, tea plants, um, 
towns bringing yeah. leaves and things like that. Um, I mean, it must be a great alternative for them, I imagine, although I don't know that much about the sort of costs for, for uh, waste disposal. But I imagine it costs them the same or less to bring it to you. Yep. We're generally half of what the landfill charges is what we charge. So, um, and sometimes, like if we, with carbon materials, a lot of it we just take free. Sure. Because um, we just, we want it. Right, um, if, you're getting, if you're getting a lot of fish guts, yeah. you need all the carbon material you can get, right, to offset the nitrogen. Yeah, okay. and so we, um, we're different than a lot of composters where we, we price it intentionally much lower because we're trying to source really good ingredients, really clean stuff. Um, our model is based on selling a high-quality compost. Yeah. We're not in it for uh, the tipping fees, which some places are into. Got it. Yeah, yeah. it's a different, it's a sort of a, some people are into the waste management model of it, and we're just into the soil health, the soil building aspect of right. it. It's a different flip of the same coin. So does that mean then that you run into situations where you have to not accept things from people? Yes, that's always hard and people get upset, but we've gotten loads of food scraps before that have juice boxes and cheese stick wrappers and oh, wow. uh, stuff like that. And we just, we have to just load it back into their truck and they have to take it to the dump. Right. That's not compostable. Right, right. Um, a lot of people think that you make compost just out of food scraps. I think because those bins often say compost that you put your food scraps in, and that's not actually compost. Those are materials for making compost. Um, I like when it says wasted food. Hmm. It just makes you think about it a little more. Rather sure. than food waste, it's like yeah. wasted food. But yeah. um, really thinking about if it comes from the earth, it can go back to the earth. So the cheese stick wrapper doesn't belong in there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and why do we wrap our cheese and sticks in plastic like that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's many times that we have not accepted something, but every driver that comes down has to sign a form saying they understand that our compost is made for putting on organic uh, fields, for growing food. It must not contain, and it lists many things. Sure. Um, and you, that form is actually on our website, yeah, too, no, so I saw people it, can yeah. see it. We, we post our tipping fees. We're very transparent about what we can and can't accept. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in Northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions, and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So you point out that 
food scraps are not the only thing that one would need for making compost. Do you have any tips for people that want to compost at home? I mean, having having you know lived in New York City for a long time, in the last three years in New York City, there now is municipal composting. Yeah. Theoretically. I don't actually know because what I know in New York is that there are brown bins and that's where we put our food scraps and soiled paper and stuff like that. And it goes in a different truck. Yeah. What they're actually doing with that on a larger scale, I don't, I don't really know. Um, we used to, at the Brooklyn Kitchen, have a carting company that also did composting. Mm-hmm. Again, it's hard for me to imagine that our compost bin that sat out on the street in New York City that I know people were throwing other trash into that we never saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know on the composted side of that if it was really just a, oh yeah, we're composting and it was just going in the landfill or not. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, my, my original question really is, you know, for people that do have some space mm-hmm. and say a garden at home and they do want to do some composting, do you have any tips on, you know, how to accomplish that? Yeah, um, I think so in this, I, I've never actually composted in the city. I've always lived in sure. like a very rural area. Yep. Um, but I, in, in our system, I could actually show you our piles out there. We have a three pile system. I think a, a very um, common mistake is people just have one bin that they're just always adding stuff into, and generally they're only adding food scraps. Right. And it becomes this like gross slurry with a lot of insects, and you're never going to really want to put that on your garden, and right. it never finishes because you're always adding material to it. In our system, we have three piles. I just I keep a home pile just so that people can see how easy it is. Yeah. And you do need one active pile where you're adding material into, and you do need a lot more carbon. So that's the that's the one thing. If you're gonna have a mistake, add too much of that browns material, that carbon material. It might be a little harder to source in the city, but there's always some trees that leaves are falling from. Sure. Um, and so when you say brown, you're talking about um, leaves, cut grass. Um, it, cut grass that is brown. Right. Yep. Um, when it's really green still, it's very nitrogen-rich. And, um, and um, trimmings, like if you're cutting back your perennials, um, fine ground wood chips. It might be hard in a home pile to have the coarse ground ones yeah. that we can do here. Um, coffee grounds uh, and things like that, that if you think about them, they sort of, they don't smell. They absorb od- odors. Right. So that's what you're looking for. You need a lot more of that. So... In mind, we have 30 parts carbon to one part nitrogen. That doesn't mean to say that your kitchen scraps are 100% nitrogen. Sure. But so generally, if I have one bucket of food scraps in my kitchen, I want to have six buckets of leaf or wood chip or that carbon material to absorb that odor and mix that in. And always leave the top of it covered with carbon. So you never have food scraps hanging out in the top. Um, but uh, and and I think that you could do that with those bins. Just have one bin that you're accumulating in, and then once that's full, have a second bin that you're just letting that break down. Once a month, you just get in there and turn it a little bit, and then you have one, a third bin that you can actually use that compost. So technically, right. you have this nice continuum sure. of compost. So it sounds to me like the best way to go about setting up something like that would be you really should almost start from like a study of how much are you developing in a month like how much food scrap is coming out of your kitchen in a month to figure out how big to make your piles yeah right yeah if you're talking about doing this thing where you're you know it's a three-month process kind of yeah um i actually on our website do have a how to make a home compost pile little it's a my own video with my niece you know filming me but um 
it's pretty simple. So you can see, I don't even have a bin because we have a fenced-in home garden. So you can just, it's just using carbon as its own little nest. Got it. Um, but it's simple. Cool. And, yeah. Super neat. Um, so, it, you know, definitely my my sense here, and I think it's I think it's an important thing for people to think about. I mean, I you know I hope that people listening to this podcast, people listening to Heritage Radio Network, you know, are people who do care about where their food is coming from. And I think a lot of time gets spent talking about the food itself, how great the carrot is, what kind of seed it was, where it was native to. Um, but I think we do really have a responsibility to come back to really the beginning and say, okay, but where was it? What was it grown in, mm -hmm. right? Not just where was it grown. People talk about terroir and all these other things and certain plants that will grow in different regions and zones. Um, but then what is in the soil really, I think, is, you know, is incredibly important. Are there other uh, composters around the country similar to what you're doing? Like, how big an industry is this? Um, it's a pretty small industry, but there are, um, I would say Vermont compost has a really good quality compost. Um, people know of Coast of Maine. That's a good quality sure. compost. Um, I know that there's some in California. I just don't. I don't use. I don't. I don't know right. much about them. Sure. Um, but it seems like Colorado, those areas have a, and there's a, really a demand for high quality compost. Yeah. There is. What's funny is there's not a demand for low quality compost, and those <laughs> guys are having a hard time. They almost end up. It's like another waste product at the end. And then what uh, do you do with what do you do with this trash filled compost? Right. Um, but. It's that's just pushing the problem down the line a little bit more. Yeah. But if you do a good job and you you're you're gonna sell it because it's very easy to grow in. Yeah. And your stuff tastes amazing, and yeah, you're avoiding all sorts of pests and diseases at the same time. So it's yeah. Um, and so people can come here to your farm in Charlestown, Rhode mm -hmm. Island, and pick it up, right? If you have a pickup truck and you want a truckload, you can just roll up and you pay by the weight, right? Uh, by right. the yep, by the yard. By the yard. So yep. No worries. By, and by the yep. Volume. And then we do um, bag our compost. It's available at a lot of garden centers around. And um, we also have local truckers that truck it, you know, pretty far range, like New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, that range. Um, beyond that, it gets a little cost prohibitive sure. <laughs> for yeah, trucking. Right, right, the shipping costs. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're kind of figuring out that whole trucking thing now for the bags to get a little further. Right now, they're just available Connecticut, Mass, and Rhode Island. Got it. We're, um, busting out of that soon. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Um, and as a, like, as a business, are you guys, you know, are, have you been making the same amount of compost every year for the last 10 years? Are you expanding? Are you actively seeking new customers? Do you sell everything you make? Like, how does that side of it work? Um, we, uh, we have a limited footprint here, and to open another site is pretty expensive. You can see the equipment we have. Yeah. So we've been making the same amount of compost, I would say the last 15 years oh, wow. at this level. Yep. And, um, we do sell everything we make, but we are just adjusting our model a little bit. We're doing, I'm going more towards getting the material out to it. Like, people, less people are farmers and more people have a little backyard garden. Sure. So we're doing more bagging than right. we were and, um, and less of the, less people also have pickup trucks. Right. Um, sure. So there's less. <laughs> the rise I, of the SUV, and nobody wants to put compost it's true, in the back of the SUV. It's true, and even the pickup trucks now have these really short beds. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're seeing a shift in the model. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, that's what's happening. But same amount of compost, just sold in different ways. <laughs> uh, you guys also grow some garlic, right? Yeah, we grow a lot of garlic, and uh, it has quite a following. Oh <laughs> it's yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Our seed garlic, which is only like the top ten percent, when I separate out the, all the garlic. 
is sold already pre-sold for next year. Wow. <laughs> um, but our uh, and tell we, me, tell me a little. Am I right that I understand that each clove essentially operates as from a head of garlic operates as a seed for a new garlic plant? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you can plant your clove and you get a full head. Got it's it. a nice return. Yeah. <laughs> um, and around here, garlic grows beautifully um, in New England. I, I think it's. Um, there's very few pests and diseases like deer and bunnies don't like it which are big pests sure um and uh it's just the environment is right it's also one of the few crops that you plant in october when you're kind of oh i made it through the season this one last thing to put in the ground something feels so good about it and then you can see it growing a little bit throughout the winter and it's the first thing to be green in the springtime which we all need yeah and then we get those delicious scapes. Yeah. And then we pull it in July, and there's always something to do with it. I feel like always some. It's hmm. like a good. It's a nice year, year full year yeah. cycle, right? And this is my so my twentieth year of saving seed oh, from wow. our plants. Super um, cool. What's the genesis of those plants? Like, where did it come from it originally? It was originally um, German extra hardy. I find we must have a similar growing climate to Germany hmm. in some ways, and um, but it's I, I, about. Maybe eight years ago, I started calling it Earth Care Farm Garlic because it's has more tinges of red. It's a much bigger clove. It's a little um, spicier than it originally was. I mean, I don't know if it's my own taste buds, but a lot of people say that as well. We make a delicious garlic powder with it that is so much more potent than a garlic powder you buy just like at the wow. grocery store. Um, you just have to add a, a lot less, but it's a nice flavor, really hmm. nice flavor. So, yeah, it's, it's different. That's cool. I mean, I would imagine, right? I mean, you know, all of these things, it's all, there is, you know, there is an evolution to them. So if you guys have been growing it here for 20 years, it must have changed to a certain extent if you've just been reusing those seeds. I mean, that's how that's yeah. how it works. I think, we, I think we tend to think of these things, especially with seeds or in the modern way, like that they're stuck in time. Yeah. That like, you know, this seed is the same as the last one as the last one which could be true from a seed bank, I suppose, but if you're growing it in the same location for that long, it must be changed. Even this, this is the Sugar Snacks carrot. It says it's like a eight to 10 inch carrot. And this is like two <laughs> feet long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it just depends where it's grown for yeah. sure. But I don't know at what point you can call it your own. I, I don't know if I'm legit and be able to call it my earth care farm. I mean, until somebody says not to, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, st we do still have garlic, the, the smaller cloves, which we sell. We, we call them culinary garlic. There's yeah. really no difference, just size. That right. We do sell it on our website. Cool. <laughs> um, anything else happen? So you guys, you host some uh, events here, I notice. You do some stuff for kids in the fall on Friday mornings yes. here. Yes, yeah. I came a few weeks ago and did a mushroom walk in the woods behind the farm. Um, you tend to do a lot of events, and we're talking about doing some cooking classes. I'm excited right? about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd love to um, get people here. We're kind of off the beaten path, and I think when you come and see... It's what we're all about. It's a different thing than you'd imagine an industrial-sized compost site to be like. For sure. And um, I, I like to connect people to that. Um, so you can see, oh, this is what grows in this soil. And look at, th they. we clearly care about things. I just, I, I love this place so much. Yeah. So I love to share it. <laughs> awesome. And what do you think is like, you know, what, what is your hope for the future, I guess? I mean, do you think that like, in 40 years will your son be running this business that would be great if that's what he's drawn to i would love that um i also have some nieces i could see doing cool. that too maybe together yeah. um i'd love to keep it in the family but uh, i want people to also follow their passion so sure. whatever that 
there's someone with this passion that right. wants to do this. Absolutely. So, and I'm happy to teach him. <laughs> well, awesome, Jade. Thank you so much for uh, for chatting with me today. Oh, uh, and this, your property really is spectacular. And, Thank and you. as you say, it, it is off the beaten path. And the first time I came here, I kind of didn't know what to, <laughs> what it was going to be. I'd seen the signs, yeah. you know, out on Route Two, and you drive past there, and and I, Earth Care Farm. What is what is what is it? Right. <laughs> I wasn't sure. And then when you drive, when you finally make it all the way down here, it's just it's it's a gorgeous piece of property. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show. You can reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.